Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by Army Colonel Kay Wakataki, the Staff Judge Advocate for the Army Medical Command at the Pentagon. Kay's also an Iraqi War veteran, a paratrooper, and a wife and mother. Colonel Wakataki shares her experiences of leveling the playing field physically and intellectually so as not to be seen as the underdog, while accepting challenges with a can-do spirit. Kay, thank you so much for making time for me today. Thank you for having me. You and I were recently introduced by Army veteran Howard High, whose wife Denise recently shared her experiences in the Army on a previous episode. And I've been looking forward to connecting with you because you're so accomplished in so much of your career. And I'm interested to hear about how you were able to take advantage of the opportunities that the Army has offered you and what your experiences are like today. So could you start us off by sharing where you're from and what led you to joining the military? Well, it's hard to pinpoint where I'm from because I am actually a military brat and my father worked for the Air Force. And then after my parents divorced, my stepfather also was an Air Force active duty officer. So growing up from birth until age 12, I lived in Japan, Korea, California, Virginia, and mostly on the Pacific coast. And every year we'd go to Hawaii for summer to visit my family on my father's side. And I would also visit my Korean family during certain summers. So because I went to Hawaii every year, I would say I'm from Hawaii. But from age 12 until I graduated from high school, I lived in Tacoma, Washington, where my stepfather was stationed at McCord Air Force Base. And I lived here until I graduated. So I started saying I'm from Tacoma, Washington. So now as an adult, I say I'm from Tacoma, but I'm really more of a West Coast girl. Yeah, I have a similar story because my dad was active duty Army. So I moved around growing up too, and even went to three high schools. So it's tricky to answer the where are you from question. Did growing up in the military influence your decision to join? Yes, definitely. And it influenced my decision in a way that I really didn't consider any other path. I always knew I was going in the military. That was my plan. And from age five, I had planned to be a doctor in the military. Why a doctor? Well, because when I was five years old, I had an eye appointment with an optometrist or an ophthalmologist. I don't remember which, but that female doctor was so nice and she was so pretty. And I thought I wanted to be like her. And so I decided at age five, I'm going to be an, a military doctor, maybe an Air Force doctor, just like her. I don't remember her name, but I just remembered that's what I wanted to be. So growing up, you know, going through high school, I really was pretty good in math. I was decent in science. Uh, you know, English was a little bit writing, creative writing. That was a little bit of a struggle. I still did, did well. I did well in high school, was valedictorian. So I went to, well, first I applied to um, all the service academies. I got into all the service academies. I also applied for scholarships from all three services and I got scholarships. But because I wanted to be a doctor, the Army scholarship was the only scholarship that allowed me to be a pre-med major. The Air Force and Navy scholarships were for engineering majors, and 
I also decided I didn't want to go to the service academies. I wanted to have a normal college life. By that time, of course, I knew the freedoms you have as a college student. And my brother actually went to the Air Force Academy for a year and then quit after that. And he's two years older than I am. And he convinced me that I do not want to go to the service academy. And he showed me all the freedoms he has, living in the dorms. You can come and go as you please. So I decided I'm joining the Army ROTC program, and I went to the University of Notre Dame, which was the farthest school away from home that I got into, and I wanted to also get out of Tacoma, Washington. So that's how I ended up going into the Army. And when did you shift gears from pursuing medicine to pursuing law? Well, while in college, I decided I really hated organic chemistry. And so I changed my majors, the Air Force, I'm sorry, the Army Scholarship allowed me to change majors. So I became a political science major at Notre Dame, we call it government major. And uh, by the time I was about to graduate, or maybe my senior year, I realized you can't really do much with the government major. By that time, I wanted to just do my four-year obligation in the military and then get out into the civilian world. By that time in college, exposed to a lot of different people, friends whose parents were in the private sector. You know, I had never met lawyers before. So that kind of opened my eyes to other possibilities outside of the military. So I decided to go to law school after I graduated from college and was commissioned as a second lieutenant. Wow. That is quite the journey from which route you could have taken to pursue both college and the military, uh, from service academies to traditional colleges, and that your ROTC scholarship had the flexibility to change majors because once you hit organic chemistry, you definitely know if plowing down the medical field track is or isn't for you. So the bigger question here is, was there any inner family rivalry with you joining the Army? Oh, yes. My dad always likes to rub it in, you know, doing four years of Army ROTC, being exposed to gung-ho soldiers or cadets who everybody wants to go infantry and combat arms. I started believing in that, you know, in the rivalry of, well, we're real soldiers. Air Force, you right. guys, you know, you just go go <laughs> to the golf course and you go on these two-month deployments and you call it, oh my gosh, I've I've deployed four times and I'm like, oh, that's eight months total. <laughs> but my dad, and he said, his response is, yes, we do. I mean, he proudly says, yes, while I'm on the golf course, you're in the bunker. <laughs> so it's a, it's a fun rivalry. I know. I so get that because everyone in my family was in the army. And one reason I joined the air force is because every time, every time, they came home from being in the field or going on deployment. They all always muttered, I should have joined the Air Force. <laughs> and uh, I remember my dad always having to do PT early in the mornings. So with that, with the physical demands of the Army, with push-ups and pull-ups, was that easy for you or was that something you had to work on developing? Were you athletic growing up? Did you play sports? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, oh, I love your question because I've always been athletic, but not in a team sports way. Growing up, I did ballet, dance. I was eight years old when my parents put me in ice skating lessons and I picked it up really fast and progressed 
just for one year because we moved after that year. But in that one year, the ice skating instructor said, you know, I had really good potential. I learned quickly. Like I went from group lessons to individual lessons. And by the time my dad was PCSing, we were going to Korea. The instructor was talking to my parents about having me live with her because she would board other uh, ice skating students of hers. Uh, we didn't pursue that, obviously, but I've always had a natural ability. I did play team sports once. I think I was in the ninth, I was nine years old and I played softball, never played it before. Part of the tryouts was hitting a ball and I hit every pitch that came my way, never having picked up a bat before. So I was always pretty coordinated. In high school, I did the individual sports though, because I was kind of the outcast. So remember I said I arrived in Tacoma, Washington at age 12, seventh grade. Well, seventh grade was the year that I got braces. I had the whole shebang, the rubber bands and the headgear. And I was a wow. good patient and I wore that headgear all day long. So needless to say, I was not very popular. I didn't really fit in. How did they know Kei Wakatake? Oh, she's the girl with the headgear. So I ended up doing cross country and track and I did dance team and I was captain of the dance team a couple of years. So I always was athletic. Uh, I never considered myself strong because I didn't lift weights. So when I got to college and started doing army PT in the mornings, I realized that my upper body strength, like many girls, I did not have well-developed upper body strength. So for some reason, I don't know if something that maybe it was my dad or stepfather who told me, but I just thought if I can level the playing field physically, then people will you know, appreciate what I have to say for my mind, because I always thought I was smart, but I felt for some reason, at least in the military or, and maybe even in life, and maybe it's part of the observation in high school that the popular kids tended to be athletic or pretty. The girls were pretty, the guys were athletic. And even though they could be dumb, if they were on the football team, people looked up to them. So maybe part of that was, if I can develop my physical fitness, my upper body strength, and I could do as many push-ups as the guys, not as the girls, but as the average guy, and if I could do pull-ups, which most women can't, then that to me would level the playing field. So I worked on my physical abilities and in college as a freshman, there were two women in particular who were seniors in ROTC, two cadets that I really looked up to and they lifted weights. And so I asked if I could lift weights with them. So little freshman Kay was, in, was welcomed to join these senior girls into the gym as they lifted weights. I love how you had two women ahead of you that you could look up to in your ROTC program. How many women were in the program with you? It was actually pretty diverse. Um, there were a good number, but it was probably, I don't know, 20% if I had to guess. Well, those numbers aren't terrible. <laughs> not great, but not terrible. So you graduate from Notre Dame and you love academia so much, you go right into law school. How long was law school and where did you go? Law school's three years and it was right there where you are in Los Angeles, actually Malibu. I went to Pepperdine and well, the reason I wanted to get out of Indiana was because it's Indiana. Four <laughs> winters, 
in Indiana were too cold for me. So I wanted to go where it was warm. I'm a West Coast girl. So of course, Mm -hmm. California. And I stayed there for three years, full-time law student. And I know I'm kind of jumping ahead, but one of your questions was about dating. And while in law school, that's where I met my husband. And he had no experience with the military. He's a little bit older than I am. And he was a partner at a law firm in Los Angeles. But for him, the only military exposure he had was his older siblings. One of them was reserve, I think, officer or enlisted. He was a medic during the Vietnam era. And then the other exposure to the military was my husband's older brother, who was like one of those anti-war protesters. So for him, the military was very foreign to him. And when I met him and I told him I was going in the army after law school, he did not understand anything. (laughs) He couldn't understand PT. He, He would, you know, I would complain like, oh yeah, we had to do this. And he'd say, well, just don't go. <laughs> if it were that easy. <laughs> and uh, he, he also thought it was cool because all he saw were very masculine women portrayed, um, or maybe you might see that movie Private Benjamin, where she's just Miss Prissy. And so he thought it was fascinating that I would be going into the army. What he found interesting about me or intriguing about me was he says, I'm the only one who never asked him, where is this relationship going? Because (laughs) I was like, hey, I'm having fun. Great dating you. I appreciate all the nice restaurants you're taking me to. But when when I graduate from law school and pass the bar, I'm going in the army. So, you know, I don't know what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also good for me because it keeps me grounded. I don't get too much into the military mindset. He gives me that civilian perspective, even after all these years of being together. Oh, wow. That is a great story. And I like that you can appreciate his perspective from the civilian standpoint while also being in the same career field without having to be competitive. So when you graduated from law school, were you a captain at that point? I stayed in the reserves while, while in law school. And in the reserves, you earn points. And while in law school, I got promoted from second lieutenant to first lieutenant. And when I came into the JAG Corps, I came in as a first lieutenant. So you're a first lieutenant, fresh out of law school. Where was your first duty assignment? So my first duty assignment was in Korea. And the unit I was with is the, was the second infantry division. And it's a very male dominant. And I initially did legal assistance, which is helping soldiers with their personal issues like landlord-tenant, child custody, divorce, just basic soldier assistance. And it's a good way for attorneys new to the military to find out how the military works. So when you're helping the soldier, you're finding out about their problem. And they might say, but my company commander or my platoon sergeant won't help me. And then you're like, oh, I got to figure out what what a platoon sergeant is or what does a company commander do? After doing legal assistance for three months, I was moved over to a field artillery brigade. So I was the only female officer in a staff of, I don't know, 40 or 50 people. The commander was male. I mean, it's field artillery is one of those combat arms branches. So you at that time, you did not have any female 
field artillery officers. So we did PT every day. And like I said about my, my philosophy of leveling the playing field mm -hmm. to make sure nobody can look at me to say, oh, well, she fell behind in the run. You know, we have to carry her rucksack because she can't carry it. You know, I worked extra hard to make sure that I was physically average, like an average guy, uh, which meant I had to be really good as a female. But to me at that time, there were no other females around me. The officers did PT on, you know, together. We did not do it with the enlisted. So the staff officers, we'd go on a group run. Well, if I'm the only female, I thought I'm not going to be the one to fall behind. And so a, a couple of friends or staff officers who eventually became friends, they told me they were impressed because I never fell out of a run. And I remember there was one PT, which was usually we had fun Friday PT. And it was one PT on a Friday where we had the field grades, so the older officers, versus the younger, the company grade officers. So the captains and lieutenants against the majors, lieutenant colonels and the colonel. And it was a team competition. And the teams would take turns picking the event. And so of course the young captains and company grades, we were beating all the older guys, right? <laughs> um, and even having you know, female K on their team, the company grades, you know, with the runs and whatever, the field grade, the older guys, they thought, you know what, the company grade has K on the team. What event can we do? What kind of exercise can we do where K will fail and we can finally beat the captains? <laughs> so they decided it's going to be a buddy carry. Like you had to carry a buddy across, I don't know, whatever, and then switch and then have the other person carry. And so I thought, oh my gosh, I've never carried a guy before. So we had the smallest guy who was 180 pounds partnered with me. What? How tall are you? I'm 5'4", about okay. 125 pounds. <laughs> and um, so we had, so the smallest guy was partnered with me when it was our turn, you know, it was a, like a relay. He picked me up, you know, and ran me across <laughs> and then, and I still remember, this was almost 20 years ago, but I still remember it because he said, okay. And then he just jumped on my back. What? And my legs, <sighs> I thought I was going to collapse, but I thought, just keep moving forward. So I actually carried him across and, and we ended up winning, but I have no idea how I carried him. <laughs> and like, everybody was impressed. Everybody was amazed, including myself. And I thought, I have no idea how that happened because, and I forgot his name, but he said, wow, I'm really impressed you, ca you carried me, Kay. And I said, well, I was just falling and I just kept my legs falling in front of me so I didn't fall to the ground. So a game that was set up to try to get you to fail, you just killed it. <laughs> yeah. So how long were you in Korea, your first duty assignment? So this was before 9-11. So we like to be gung-ho and in the army, the most gung-ho high-speed deployment you could get was in Korea, the second infantry division. This is not Seoul. This is north of Seoul, closer to the DMZ. And because it's closer to the DMZ, it's considered a hardship tour and we cannot bring families. So normally mm -hmm. soldiers are stationed there for only one year. And usually you get your pick for your next assignment. Well, I was single, mm -hmm. I wasn't married. Um, I was still dating my husband who was in California 
but we were not married. We were still dating long distance. So um, I really enjoyed my brigade and my commander that I extended. I was there for two years in 2ID. So some people say I was crazy, but I, being the gung-ho army officer, I'm like, yeah, I stayed in Korea 2ID longer than I needed to. Wow. That had to be an interesting journey for you at the same time that you were, like you said, a full-time civilian in grad school, but then you jumped right into a military lifestyle immediately. And I guess as you were learning about the culture of the military, what you were saying, like just the rank structure and who to go to next, what that chain of command is, you were learning that along the way as well. Yeah, I never thought of that, but you're absolutely right. It was a great chance for me to really immerse myself in the army. So you do two years in Korea on a quote unquote hardship tour, and you must have had your pick of any assignment you wanted. So where'd you PCS to? After two years in Korea, I thought, you know, I think I want to go back to Tacoma. So I asked for Fort Lewis and I got it. By that time, my husband and I had married. We got engaged while I was in Korea. We got married while I was in Korea. And then, you know, it was like we got married in Maui. Like I flew in from Korea to Maui. He flew in from San Diego to Maui. We got married and then we went back to our separate continents. Oh, wow. (laughs) So so I wanted to be on the West Coast, kind of closer to him. That's where I was stationed next. And that was where I was when 9-11 happened. I was working at the hospital at the time, the Madigan Army Medical Center, and I was the medical malpractice attorney. So I like to say, you know, I'm a pre-med dropout, but I I can still work in a hospital. (laughs) Yes, it all comes full circle. So what do you remember about 9-11 and being stationed at such a large medical facility? Because I was also at a medical facility at that time at Ramstein, and we were really gearing up the deployment lines with like DNA testing and wellness checks, as well as doing a lot of drills on uh, bandaging injuries. And since I worked in the lab, like what remote testing would be like, but from a JAG standpoint, do you remember what changes were implemented or what, what your business was shifting to? What I do recall changing was we were giving more briefings to pre-deployment soldiers. We did wills, powers of attorneys. We, We were just preparing more soldiers in the event they had to deploy. But my main job was a medical malpractice attorney. Now, I did move over to the main JAG office. And because we had a number of Army officers, Army judge advocates deploying, we had to mobilize the reserve JAGs to come into our office. So I remember I was the OIC officer in charge of the legal assistance office. And I had, I think, 13 lawyers and paralegals from the reserves working in the office. And here I am, maybe three years out of law school, And I'm in charge of 13 lawyers, and one of them is a federal judge. (laughs) Oh, oh, wow. Wow. Of course, I'm not going to say, I'm the OIC, you do as I say, you know. So it it was really interesting. He was a great guy, very humble. He joined the military because of 9-11, because I had asked him, you're 37 years old. And at that time, I thought, wow, that's old. Uh, But, you know, you're 37 years old. You're already a judge on the bench. Why 
joined the military and now you're a first lieutenant and you have this young captain as your supervisor. And he, he said it was 9-11 and that was a very common reason. There were so many people who joined the military because of 9-11 and it was so inspiring to see just the way the country came together, just patriotism. You know, we, we talk about the greatest generation. Well, I, I like to think that maybe we were too after 9-11. Agreed. Did you at that point, was it on your radar that you would deploy as you were seeing other JAG officers deploying? It was not on my radar. And so few people were deploying at that time that the few who did deploy, we all admired them. We were like, wow. And and there was a part of me that wanted to deploy, but uh, not everybody was deploying. And I thought, okay, well, I kind of already had a deployment to Korea. Now, I didn't deploy until 2010. So that was 9-11 was 2001. So for the first four years, I did not think I was missing out. But then when we were really picking up the war in Iraq and more and more people were deploying, I became one of the few people who had not yet deployed. So I thought, okay, now I really need to deploy because I want to get promoted, I want to stay competitive, and I also want to do my part. I'd like to talk a bit more about your deployment, but before that, there's a nine-year span that was a big part of your career. So in the JAG Corps, were you often the only woman in the room? No, I was not. So after I left third I I'm sorry, second infantry division, I was stationed in areas or in assignments where I was with a lot of women. I was the recruiting officer, so I recruited for the JAG Corps in Washington DC and you know, we traveled to the law schools and to different conventions to try to recruit people into the JAG Corps and in the legal community, they're like 50% of the lawyers are women. So there were many women around me. I had many female peers. Um, didn't see as many women, you know, it wasn't 50-50 in the higher ranks, but there were plenty of women for me to look up to. I have a couple mentors who were women in the DC area. It was common for women to always be in the room. I was rarely the only female in the room. Um, and I think the military is one of the types of employers that really does well with equal opportunity for women, at least in the middle and lower ranks. And hopefully as we work up into the higher ranks as well. And I think progress is slow, but it's happening. And I do have my theory, um, of course, it's not my theory, but it's probably someone else's and I've read it somewhere and I think it's true. The reason you don't see women in the higher ranks at the military is because they're not the ones in the infantry. They're not the ones in the combat arms. Who do you see right now as the generals? It's the ones who have combat arms, the combat patches, the infantry, you know, so Vietnam era for us, me, when we're coming up through the ranks, you didn't, you didn't see women in the infantry. What were the women? They were the nurses. They were the, you know, the secretaries or the admin clerks. So of course, they're not going to pick a nurse to be the chief of staff of the army. They want someone who has experience more broadly. So I think we're starting to see women in the other fields, other branches. And I think eventually that's why we're seeing more and more women. We're not there yet. I mean, in the JAG Corps, we probably have about 50% of the incoming lawyers are women. But then when you look at the higher ranks, 
we have five generals in active duty, only one woman out of the five. So you do have that attrition. Um, I haven't really given too much thought of why that's the case. I would imagine part of it is family, part of it is deciding between a husband and wife whose career is going to take the lead. Yeah, I'm over here nodding my head as you're talking because I think it's those things too. And I just did an episode with an army vet from the Vietnam era And her husband was also active duty, and on their first assignment overseas, they had started their family. And not only was she dealing with not having a maternity uniform, but uh, they didn't have services or programs available to parents who were both serving. So she said although she would have liked to have stayed in in the late 70s, it was challenging for her to find balance with work and family. So she got out once her enlistment ended. And as you mentioned in your experience, with more women serving in the JAG Corps and overall, with more women serving today than ever before, and with more women deploying to combat zones and more career fields that have opened up to women, I agree with you that I think we'll see more women rise through the ranks and move into positions that have been predominantly held by men. And no shade to the men, but there's room to grow. And in speaking of growing, in addition to recruiting for the JAG Corps, you are also a new mom. Can you speak a little bit about that? I have twin boys who were born in 2004. So it was actually a good time to be a recruiting officer because it allowed me to kind of be home with the kids. And they were young enough that when I had to travel to a a couple places like Philadelphia or like a convention in DC, I could bring my family with me. I didn't have to worry about them pulling them out of school. So it was kind of a good time for me to do do that. My boss was really great because I could bring in my babies into my office, you know, kind of create a little boundary for them to play in, crawl around, they couldn't walk. And then I would just keep working or I'd bring the paperwork files home with me and work. So, so it was fine. Um, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. That's really great. You had that support. So you have twins and you're balancing work responsibilities with family responsibilities. And we're nearing 2010 when you said you deployed. So what was that like? Yes. So in 2009, I was stationed with the 3rd Infantry Division at one of the brigades, the 4th Infantry Brigade Combat Team, 3rd Infantry Division. It's in Fort Stewart, Georgia. And again, another male-dominated unit because it's infantry. And I, this time I was one of two female officers on the staff. You know, I, I tried to make sure I fit in to make sure that physicality was never a limitation for me. And then we deployed and we were stationed in Ramadi and Fallujah. So as the lawyer, I visited, you know, the troops in Fallujah and Al-Anbar. The role that we played was as an advise and assist brigade. So we were helping to establish the rule of law. We had officers who were embedded with the Iraqi police, they would live with them, try to teach them how to conduct an investigation, how to collect evidence, how to maintain it and not contaminate it. So as the lawyer, I would go out and meet with some of those police officers or some of the prosecutors and judges and answer questions, tell them how we do things in the United States and um, just monitor how they're working. So my deployment was six months. 
my brigade was there for a whole year, but I was picked up for advanced schooling, the Command and General Staff College, CGSC. So since I got picked up, I had to attend that. And, and so unfortunately, I had to leave my deployed my deployment early, had to leave my brigade. But if I could have been able to stay, I would have loved it because it, I, I was so proud of what they do. We worked, I mean, I literally worked 18 hour days. I was so sleep deprived, but everybody was doing that. You know, it's like, I never felt bad or angry because everybody in the staff we're working those long hours. Being deployed in Iraq, I always like to think, what lessons did I learn? Well, I learned that you don't always have to take a shower every day <laughs> <laughs> because it's so hot in Iraq that after you shower, you're sweating again. So before I was deployed, I thought, I need a block of two hours to go to the gym because after I work out, then I have to shower and then do my hair. Um, and so it would be very hard for me to get, a, get in a workout. Well, when I was deployed, I had so little time, but I had to exercise. So I found time. I made time, even if it's 15 minutes in the gym, as I'm walking from the talk, the talk is TOC, Tactical Operations Command. Anyway, from the command cell to the DFAC, dining facility, I would pass by the gym. So I'd pop in, you know, do 15 minutes, whether it's a quick weight workout or 15 minutes on the ellipse, and then go to the DFAC because I didn't have to shower. Nobody knew I just came from the gym. They thought I would be sweating because <laughs> right. I just walked the 15 minutes to the DFAC. So I learned hey, I can just sneak in exercise a little bit here, a little bit there. I don't need a good two-hour chunk of time. <laughs> so that had to be a nice way for you to find balance. Yes, absolutely. Even though I say I'm athletic, there have been times that I have been out of shape. And I realize that when I'm out of shape, I don't have energy and the stamina that I had when I was in shape. And so... My mantra became, when I was deployed, I would tell myself, I don't have time to not work out. Exercising gave me energy. You know, you get that endorphin rush, and it's just healthier, and I think more clearly. So, yes, it, it was a good way to find balance, but I was doing it more because I thought, I have to work out because I know I'm going to be working late. Yeah, you can get a good workout in in 15 minutes. So in regards to your deployment in Iraq and meeting with the locals, what was your experience with the Iraqi men, like with their police and their military training? And I'm curious because I never deployed, but in 2001, I was stationed in Istanbul and working at the Ataturk International Airport, and a Turkish man came into our work area. And there were three of us working. We were all Air Force, but we always wore civilian clothes. And the Turkish man went to David to get a document signed. But I was the highest ranking person in the room. And by high ranking, I mean E5. So, but, but the Turkish guy didn't know that. Anyway, David directed him to me to get the signature. And the Turkish guy gave us both a weird look. And then he went to Aaron, the other guy in the room, and he asked Aaron to sign the document. And Aaron directed him to me. And the Turkish guy looked at the both of them, then looked at me, and he scoffed and he said, you two listen to a woman? No, forget it. 
I don't need a signature. And then he walked out. And Istanbul is a fairly European city, but it's still a part of the Middle East. And that was the first time I experienced such blatant discrimination for being a woman. And when he left, we were all kind of stunned and grumbled about it. And the guys were like, are you okay? And then we went on with our work. But did you ever have an experience like that? I did, but I had also heard about that. Um, the very male-dominated culture. Of course, being Asian, I also knew I'm familiar with a male-dominated culture. My tactic, because I heard of this, um, well, I should also say I, I frequently was not the only female in the room. There were other parties representing the U.S. government in the room. We went with, sometimes we'd go with the State Department employee, and there were two males. So, of course, they would take the lead anytime we'd go with the State Department folks. They had the lead on those engagements. When I went to the police departments, there were those Army officers who lived with them. They would take the lead, and they would introduce me as the lawyer. But um, a couple times when meeting with the judge, I would be the highest ranking person. So we, we always had a security detail. We had infantry officer, uh, soldiers who were our security. They drove us, you know, we, we'd go in a convoy of four MRAPs. And I had one soldier that I had met prior to, or, you know, as we were getting ready to deploy, I kind of met him. So I had a good cordial relationship with him. And he was tall. And he was like six foot four, big, but nice guy. And I told him, I need you to do this. And I'm going to be very upset with you. And I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to do this in front of, so I had, a, I had to do some acting. I said, I'm going to yell at you. And I want you to profusely apologize. And I'm going to tell you to leave the room or stand in the corner or something. And I want you to do that. And I explained to him what we were going to do and why I was doing it. And he played along. And it worked out really well. And when the Iraqis saw that a female just scolded this big, huge guy and he cowered, I mean, you know, that's kind of an exaggeration, but he listened to me and he did what I told him that made the Iraqis realize I have some kind of rank, but I had to, I kind of had to do the acting part. Interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I'm always curious about what other women's experiences are in an environment like that. So how did your family handle your deployment? Oh, my husband was very supportive. I'm really lucky. Uh, my husband practiced law, but then when we had kids, he put his career, he pretty much retired. He was more than happy to stay at home with the kids, probably as the envy of all his former law firm partners. <laughs> so he, he was very supportive. My stepfather, an Air Force officer, was supportive and understood but I knew my mom, my mother, my Korean mother would not understand. She was very traditional. She'd always, you know, say, oh, you, you work too hard. You know, you, you walk like a man. <laughs> you know, something like that. So I didn't even tell my mom I was deploying. Like, oh. I think she didn't find out I was in Iraq for either two weeks or two months. I forgot what it was. I, I told him. I said, Dad, you tell Mom when you think is right. And I think he didn't tell her for a couple months. And then she just cried. And, of course, she was very upset. And I had to, you know, downplay. I was like, Mom, I'm safe. Look, you know, nothing's happening. I'm, you know, I, I don't tell her 
she's a mother, but she's also a Korean mother who doesn't understand danger and service to country by a female. So she, so I just pretty much said, I'm safe. I'm fine. You know, I didn't tell her about the rats that are in the hooch. (laughs) Are you the only daughter in your family? Yes. Wow. Your story is so interesting. All right. So you go to CGSC. What does that stand for again? Command and General Staff College in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And what did that school set you up for? So the school set me up for my next jobs in more leadership positions. Um, I knew kind of, I don't know how many months in, but I knew that my next job would be at the Pentagon as the budget officer for the JAG Corps. Again, not practicing law, not as a lawyer, but I would be the budget officer. Uh, I took At the school, I took a couple classes in how the budgeting process works in the army. So when I got to my next job as the budget officer, I was a little bit familiar with what I needed to do to manage the budget. I still struggled. It was hard because I'm a lawyer by training, not a comptroller, not a budget analyst, but I had to work with the army staff who normally did that as a career. But I learned a lot from being the budget officer on how the JAG Corps works and how the army works. And it helped set me up for my subsequent jobs as the leader or the deputy leader of a JAG office at different larger commands. So after my time as the budget officer, my next assignment was as the deputy staff judge advocate for the Army Special Operations Command. So the U.S. Army Special Operations Command is in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So having served as the budget officer, I knew how a large command worked that you can't just say, oh, do this, do that. You have to get approval and it's a very complicated process. So at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, this is where I had my chance to go to airborne school because you don't want to be stationed at Fort Bragg and not have airborne wings. So I had the opportunity to go to airborne school And I went as a lieutenant colonel, and it was a much better experience than I think a lot of people who go as privates would experience, as you can imagine. Now, I I didn't abuse that, of course. I did not want to get any kind of special treatment because of my rank. Um, For example, I wanted to pull CQ duty, staying late, you know, monitoring the phone overnight. So I tried to volunteer for one of the times of CQ duty, and I was told I couldn't. And I said, look, I don't want to be treated special. Put me on the roster. And they said, ma'am, if somebody calls and a lieutenant colonel answers, that caller is going to freak out. (laughs) (laughs) Totally, yeah. Okay, (laughs) so that was funny. But um, another funny story at Airborne School is, you know, the instructors are called black hats. They wear a black baseball cap and it says airborne or so we call them black hats and the black hats are yelling at us because you have to run everywhere and hurry up hurry up you know and so in the morning you know we're running to formation and the black hats are saying hurry up hurry up and so I'm hurrying up and as I pass the black hat he's yelling at everybody else and he turns to me and says good morning ma'am hurry up <laughs> <laughs> and uh Another time we had to, you know, everything has to be done quickly and you got to do it right. You got to do it perfectly. You got to do it quickly because there's not a lot of time. So they're like, okay, 
and you're going to put on your harness and you're going to do this and that. Now go. And, and then they're yelling at you, hurry up, put it on faster, faster. So I'm like trying to do this and I'm struggling to get it on doing the buckle or something. And the black cat walks by me. He's like, do you need help with that, man? And I'm like, oh, I'm good. And he's like, hurry up, you know, yelling at everybody else. But it, it's pretty funny because as a lieutenant colonel, they still were, um, you know, very respectful of the rank. That is really funny. And I admire that you at least volunteered to do CQ duty. Can you quickly walk me through your experience of jumping out of an airplane is it as scary on the fifth time as it is the first time? I, I know airborne school is, it can be dangerous. You know, jumping out of an airplane, it's very dangerous. I, I think the Army Airborne School has a great program. They've been doing it for decades. They know how to train people. They know the process of getting people to safely jump out of an airplane. Um, that's kind of funny when I say that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but um there, there was fear in me, but it was not fear that was paralyzing. It was more fear that ensured I paid attention. It was actually scary every time, but the scariest was not from jumping out of the airplane. It was the first time I jumped out of the tower. I forgot how many feet the tower is, but it's like, it's like a high dive, maybe as high as a high dive, because they have figured out at whatever height that tower is, if you go any higher, it doesn't make a difference. It's, it's at that height that people start getting scared of heights and they freeze. So they don't need to have you jumping out of a 200 foot tower. They can put it at, I'll just say 40 feet. I don't know exactly how high it is, but let's just say the tower is at 40 feet because it's high enough that if people don't want to jump out, they won't jump out. Like if they're scared. And so my first time jumping out of that tower, I froze. You know, you walk up, you climb up the stairs, you're waiting in line, everybody goes out and they jump out and it's like a, you're, it's a harness and it's kind of like um, a zip line. So it's definitely safe. You're not going to die. But I remember getting up that height, seeing the black hat say, go, and then I'm supposed to jump and I froze. And then I heard him say, go. And nobody pushes you out. They only push you out in the movies, okay? Um, and I had seen a couple people not go, and they decide to walk down. And I thought, I'm a lieutenant colonel. Everybody knows who I am. I got to jump. Like, <laughs> I guess the pressure was good. Being a lieutenant colonel, in a way, was good because I was like, I can't fail airborne school. <laughs> I can't be anonymous. So, But that was the only time I froze. Jumping out of the plane the first time, I was the second one out. The first one out was a female, this first lieutenant, you know, I'm foot, five foot four. She was probably five foot zero or five foot one. And she jumped out first. So seeing her jump out, knowing I'm, I got a whole bunch of people behind me waiting for me to jump out. When it was my turn, I had no problem jumping out, but I was scared. Every time I'm, I was scared, even on my last jump, I was scared on the fifth jump, on the subsequent jumps when I jumped out with my unit at Fort Bragg. To me, it was always scary. And I talked to an experienced sergeant major and I said, I wish I weren't scared when I jump out at each time. And he said, when you stop being scared, that's where when you get hurt. But it's more, you know, it's not the paralyzing fear. It's more of the 
I'm scared because I know how dangerous this is. So I got to pay attention and make sure I do everything right. What do your boys think about that? Oh, they think it's cool. <laughs> and when we were, yeah, when we were at Fort Bragg, my kids play soccer and on their soccer team, I was known as the mom who jumps out of airplanes. They're like, <laughs> what does your dad do? I know your mom jumps out of airplanes. They're like, no, my mom's a lawyer. <laughs> So I noticed you said you had the opportunity to go to airborne school. Now, in talking to you and hearing about how ambitious and driven you are, when you say opportunity, I'm taking that as you chose to attend airborne school and that it wasn't mandatory for the drag career field. When I was going through my army career, you know, I didn't have any bling. <laughs> I didn't have any patch, uh, any kind of special badges or anything like that. And then getting to Fort Bragg, one of my mentors said, you need to go to airborne school. You do not want to be at Bragg and be a leg, L-E-G. You don't want to be a leg. And just like I said, I want to level the playing field by showing that I'm athletic and, you know, hang with the guys during PT. I thought the same thing will be the case if I don't have airborne wings and I'm sitting in that staff meeting or advising that commander and I'm a leg. And for some unknown reason, my legal advice seems to have more weight when I'm athletic or when I got airborne wings. So yes, I did volunteer to go to airborne school. The U.S. Army Special Operations Command, that, that unit paid for me to go to school. You don't have to go to airborne school to be in that command, but you kind of want to. Wow. I admire you so much. You exemplify leadership. You're just incredible. So where did your career take you after Fort Bragg? So after Fort Bragg, I went to Fort Eustis, Virginia. And then after Fort Eustis, I came to Tacoma, Washington to work at the hospital. And then I was promoted to colonel and I moved back to Washington, D.C. to be the staff judge advocate for Army Medical Command. But I left my family in Tacoma, Washington. So I split my time between Virginia and Tacoma. Virginia, where my assignment is, and Tacoma, where my husband and children live. All right. So lots of frequent flyer miles. Uh, did your promotion to 06 necessitate the need to PCS back east? Yes, it did. So once I got promoted to colonel, I had to move into a colonel position. So I asked for staying in the medical community. And after a long discussion and, you know, other assignments that were thrown my way, the Army finally assigned me to the Army Medical Command. And I just love it there. I have a great supervisor, great command. And, you know, in the medical field, that's where I see a lot of women. This is one of the things I love about U.S. Army Medical Command is it's about, it's even better than the JAG Corps in terms of women at the highest ranks. It probably wasn't always the case, but there are a lot of women and minorities in the highest ranks and my fellow staff officers and when we would have staff meetings, this is before COVID, before the pandemic, when we would have staff meetings in person and I'd look around the room, it's the white males who are the minorities. So I'm really happy to be where I am now. I hear that. Uh, like I mentioned, I was in the medical field for six years of my career and was surrounded by lots of wonderful people, mostly women. And my dad was actually stationed at Madigan. 
He was an OR nurse, and when I was younger, we used to visit him at the hospital, and even back then, I remember the presence of military women was always there. So now that you're a colonel and you're in a visible position of leadership, do you notice junior officers looking to you as a mentor? Have you noticed that? It has, and and it, uh, I love it. And it happened to me by surprise because I always thought I'm looking for a mentor. I'm looking for someone that I can seek advice from. And I forgot when the first time it was, but somebody had reached out to me several years ago that I was the major and he was the captain and had said, hey, ma'am, um, I'd like to ask you for some advice. So I was like, sure, absolutely, because I, I was his supervisor in the past. But when I talked to him, I was thinking, wow, this is more general advice. This is like not his one little narrow situation. It, he was asking me for career advice. And I thought, wow. And then, of course, I became a lieutenant colonel. And as a deputy staff judge advocate, like a deputy general counsel, more people were reaching out to me. And I was really, I was surprised because I did not realize the, that I had a positive impact on them when I worked with them, it's neat because even there are some younger officers and some of them are even majors now, they remember me because I was their recruiting officer or I interviewed them for the JAG Corps or I had been the one to put their packet together and I called them to say, hey, where's this or where's that? I'm looking through your file. Um, I have an unusual last name. So of course I think they would remember my last name and then when I would get promoted, I would get these emails saying, hey, congratulations, ma'am. And, you know, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this was like 15 years ago or something that they would remember me. And it's very flattering. I never thought of myself as a mentor for people like, hey, I'm experienced. So let me tell you, like, I never gave advice to people. So to me, it was very flattering that they reached out to me to say, can I ask you for some help or advice? It, it's very rewarding. And I guess now that I'm a colonel, I'm near the end of my career. And now I don't really have mentors, at least not in the JAG Corps. <laughs> All my mentors have retired anyway. So um, I'm now the old fogey giving <laughs> advice and mentoring abilities to, <laughs> to the younger folks. But, you know, I'm happy to do that. Well, you're so approachable. And in just speaking with you today, I can see how people from 10 or 15 years ago would be comfortable reaching out to you now. So do you really see yourself as being at the end of your Army career? Or maybe I should rephrase that as, where do you see yourself in the next three to five years? Well, I'm, I am at the near the end of my career. My kids are currently juniors in high school. And... I am now retirement eligible. I, I've had enough time as an 06, or I will have had enough time as a colonel to be able to retire as a colonel. And since I'm doing this cross-country commute, it, it's getting tiring, and I do want to live with my family and spend the final year of my kids' high school. The last year, they're at home permanently, you know, full-time. I want to be with them. So uh, I've made the decision to transition. Um, so by the, hopefully this time next year, I'll be a civilian. I, I do plan to look into the private sector and see what opportunities I have. I think with my healthcare law background, with my national security law experience, I think there'll be opportunities for me. 
oh, you are going to have organizations fighting over you. It's going to be great. <laughs> Do you, um, so I like to wrap up each episode with this question. If a young woman were to come up to you today and say she's thinking of joining the military, what would you say to her? I would encourage her if that's what she wants to do. I think the military offers so many wonderful opportunities for education, training, learning new skills, meeting people from all over the country, if not all over the world, and just expanding your horizon, opening up your eyes to more than what you might have seen just growing up. Joining the military exposes you to so much more and it makes you realize that you have a lot in common with more people than you realize. Right now, I think we all tend to stay in our bubble and of course with COVID, we are in our own bubble, mm -hmm. but the military really has a good way to break down a lot of those barriers and expose you to a lot more. Kay, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your time with me. Thank you. I really enjoyed my time, Mel. It's great talking to you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. If you're a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option one, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year.